Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. If you're new, this is one of your first times, it's great to see you with us this morning. Thanks for coming. I hope you're having fun. I hope you're enjoying our, our newly sandblasted roof. Um, you could just be staring up at this roof. Uh, a friend in the church actually donated his time for free for the last week to do that. So we're very grateful to Graham, Dan, for all that he's done there. Now, we're in a teaching series where we're considering the Ten Commandments from the Old Testament. And uh, we've seen that they're not, they're not Ten Commandments that you must obey or else God will be cross with you. They're more like Ten Principles for making life work well for you. And breaking the commandments is similar to just violating natural laws in the world and unleashing chaos upon yourself. Uh, rather like this man on a, on a different level did, this is um, Morgan Spurlock who ate McDonald's food every day, three times a day for 30 days uh, as an experiment and he filmed it. Uh, he ate an average of 5,000 calories per day. He gained 24 pounds in a, in a month and as a result, he experienced mood swings, sexual dysfunction and fat accumulation in his liver. It took him over a year to lose the weight that he'd gained. And now Morgan, 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 uh, Morgan Spurlock, he broke the commands for healthy eating and almost destroyed his body in the process. The Ten Commandments are like that, laws of human life that are meant to liberate us, to do us good, to enable us to make life work as well as it can and for us to enjoy the time that we've got on this planet before we die. Now, the commandments are divided into two. You can take that away now. The commandments are divided into two. The top four are about loving God. The second six are about loving our neighbors. And um, we have seen that if you keep the first commandment, have no other gods besides me, you essentially are able to keep all the rest. But if you break the first commandment, have no other gods besides me, and you live for and worship things other than God, you invite all the others into your life as well. And you might sit there and think, well, not everyone worships. The, the truth is that every human being who's ever lived worships in some level. They might not bow down to statues. They might not attend church or call themselves religious people. But all of us worship. We're all devoted to something. We all make sacrifices in the cause of some idea or persona or God with a small g that we live for. Whether those things that we are devoted to are our beauty, our image, our popularity, our friends, our family, um, our career, wealth, our own comfort, whatever it is, everybody's devoted to and worships something. Someone once said to me, the two most important questions in your life you need to answer are, uh, if you're going to marry, who will you marry? And number two, what God are you going to worship? Because not all gods are created equal uh, in that sense. Not all gods will do you the same good. Now, today we are, uh, I want us to hold those two images in our mind, that question and the image of Morgan Spurlock and Supersize Me, as we look at today's commandment, commandment number eight. Here it is, four words, one very simple idea. You shall not steal. You shall not steal. And prior to this week, we've had, you shall not commit adultery. Um, in other words, you shall not steal someone's wife. You shall not commit murder. In other words, you shall not steal someone's life. And today, just as a junk draw term, uh, plainly don't steal. And this is an, an especially controversial commandment. And you might think this is something that we, not, we don't really need to worry about. We live in Seaford or New Haven or Peace Haven. Um, with sophisticated people. Last week I accused Peacehavenites of being less sophisticated. I apologize for that. Um, it's not true. It's just 
There's some truth in every lie. Um, certainly the people from Peacehaven I've met. Um, the Tants, you cleared up for me that you're from Telscombe, so that's acceptable, acceptable um, banter. But Graham, where are you? Okay. Um, now the good news is, when it comes to theft, that between 1997 and 2017, there was a 70% drop in people being mugged, theft from the person. Uh, and actually, mugging occupies less than 3% of the police's time, which is good. And uh, if you live in a town like Seaford, your chances of being mugged are very slight, very small. However, last year in the UK, there, was a 3.5, there were 3.5 million cases of theft in England. Uh, and there has been a 17% increase in robbery in the UK and 378,000 cases of shoplifting. According to one website, 79% of us admit to stealing from our workplaces. And now most of us would say uh, it's wrong to steal, but almost all of us take things from work that we think we shouldn't, we can't, we justify it. It's reckoned in, in the US that of all the businesses that go out of business every year, one in three go out of business in large part due to employee theft. Now we may not shoplift, um, we can be trusted at the self-service checkout of Tesco's. They've trusted us as civilised human beings to you know, serve ourselves. But still, we, we might take extra long breaks at work, we might make personal phone calls on company time, we might download illegally music or sport channels or films, we might forget to return that item to the shop that they forgot to charge us for, uh, we may claim more on expenses than we should, we're not entirely honest on our tax returns, or we might take sick days when we don't really need to. I have a friend who treats his, his sick leave as basically extra days of annual leave that he's entitled to. <laughs> In other words, it might not be blue-collar crime, but we're all guilty perhaps of the odd bit of white-collar crime. The question today is why? Why do we steal and what's behind all of that? A lot of us who steal things, we steal things in the spirit of Robin Hood because we, we portray, like to portray ourselves as heroes, stealing from the rich to give to the poor ourselves. And Tesco don't need that, do they? They're wealthy fat cats in their offices. Steal from Tesco by slipping something in the bag or not returning something. They don't need that. Of course they don't. Or we steal and we minimize things by claiming that the kind of theft that we're engaging is victimless. No one's bothered if I watch TV illegally uh, without a license or a subscription. No one's bothered, no one's hurt if I use company time to make a personal phone call. I mean, besides, my, my friend is in real need and my boss would understand that I took two hours out of the time that he was paying me today to phone her and see if she was okay. It's fine. In, in so doing, we, we justify for our own good things that we do. And, um, and that leads me to my, my first confession of the morning. I, I thought I'd basically just treat today as a bit of group therapy to help me overcome my um, um, kleptomania. <laughs> Several year, months ago, I, um, I stole time. Stole time. I didn't steal watches, I stole time. Much more clever than stealing a watch. I, um, I have a, a, a problem um, whereby I'm often late for things. Uh, it is a problem. I've tried very hard for many years to not be a late person, but I can't help it. I realize I have a deep-seated, deep-rooted problem um, that I need, you know, exercising from. And one day, I was, every week I play squash with a particular friend, and every day, like, I'm, I'm a little bit late. I always leave it a little bit too close, and I arrive a little bit late. 
and I'm always running in going, oh, sorry, I'm late. Quickly get changed from the squash gear onto the court and, and dispense with him. Um, but on one occasion, I was just tired of always having to apologize. I had an idea. I climbed up high where the clock was seated and I wound it back five minutes. So now I'm no longer late. Um, and in fact, now these days when we play squash, people arrive on time for their court and they'll bang on the window and they'll say, your time's up. And we'll say, no, it's not. We've got five minutes left. In so being, I've stolen time. And I'm even glamorizing it. But I'm not the only one who's stolen time. I learned this week that the, kind of, the British icons or national treasures that are Torval and Dean stole time. That's true, that's right. Um, in the what is it, 1980 Olympics where they performed Bolero and won gold and it was like this beautiful dance, they stole time to win that. It's true. They found a loophole in the laws of the game that they were doing the thing. Uh, it is stated in the rules that the piece of music that the dancers dance to are, uh, is allowed to be four minutes maximum. And they had this, this piece of music, Bolero, they wanted to dance to, and try as they might, they couldn't get it down any shorter than four minutes 18. And so they managed to find a loophole in the law that said the time only starts when the dancers are on their feet. So they start their dance, if you remember, those, those Bolero, Torval and Dean fans out there know this, they start their dance on their knees. And they spend the first 18 seconds wafting, dancing on their knees before they stand up and the time begins. And in so doing, they stole time. Most sinister, or perhaps the soberest reason why we steal, is because of our nature. And this is time for another confession. My innocence was stolen from me when I was uh, a young teenage boy and a friend of mine, Andy Dennis, who I thought was a law-abiding citizen. He was a friend of mine. One day, Andy Dennis stole an ice pop from the, the shop on the way home from school. He told me he didn't steal it, but he did steal it. And the police came round to tell him off for stealing it. And I thought to myself, why would a law-abiding citizen, a friend of mine, steal an ice pop? Until one day I was in a shop and I wanted a penny sweet. And there were some penny sweets and I knew I could get away with it. And so I put a handful of penny sweets in my pocket and walked out the shop. That's it. <laughs> but the rush of power I felt was intoxicating. The importance that I felt in stealing my vulnerability and insecurity in life was pushed aside as I became someone powerful, stole some Apple Jacks, and I never went back and took them back to the shop, and the shop since closed, so I can't even make amends for my crime. I could wind the clock back at the squash club, but it's a, it's a high climb, and I'm sure I want to do that. Probably should. Now today, though, uh, in looking at theft and, and you shall not steal, I want to explore together just two Bible verses, and one of them you won't, you won't believe, just put it out there. And the other one you won't like. I know you won't like it. But we'll start with the one you won't believe because that's softer. Um, we're going to read together from 1 Timothy chapter 6, which is a book in the New Testament. It's a letter written to a guy called Timothy by his friend Paul um, about how to live the Christian life. And he says to him, where are you? Here we are. He says to him in 1 Timothy chapter 6, well, first of all, he starts off by saying, watch out for people who treat godliness as a means for financial gain. Watch out for people who treat Christianity as just a way of getting rich. And we all go, yeah, I agree with you, Paul. There's a lot of corrupt religious people out there who it makes me, you know, the only book I've ever thrown across the room in anger that I was reading was a book about the so-called prosperity, health and wealth gospel that exposes some of the behavior of 
religious people and the way they try to exploit people for money. It was the only book I've ever thrown across the room and it felt good to do so. But he says, shortly after saying that in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 10, he says this, Now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Good one. <laughs> it's good, isn't it? Clearly Paul had never, never seen an iPhone. Um, Never seen the Citroen C4 Grand Picasso that I drive as a family wagon. Clearly never seen that. Food and clothing will be content. Now parts of what he says we like. Verse 10, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. We're like, yes, I agree. I'm with you, Paul. Or verse 7, we've brought nothing into the world. We take nothing out of the world. We're like, yes, I agree with you, Paul. And then suddenly, listen, if you've got food and clothing, you can be content. I'm not, I'm not sure that's the whole picture, Paul. And part of the reason for that is because it... If you've been born or raised or lived for any length of time in, in the Western world, you have been born and raised into an ocean of materialism and consumerism that informs the way you think about your life, what it means to be human, how to live, and partly the society we've created, the amount of stuff that we need, and then we buy stuff and we need to maintain the stuff. We need, 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 need to sustain that. But because it's the, the water that we swim in, we barely notice it. A fish isn't aware of the water that it's in being a problem until it gets sick and then a, a fish really isn't aware of it still even then. Um, and the, part of the reason for this, and I find this quite fascinating, this, isn't, this hasn't always been the case in the Western world. Um, really it's over the last hundred years that this has emerged, certainly after the Industrial Revolution. For the past hundred years, marketing companies have been working hard at tapping into and learning how to manipulate the deep desires that are at work in each one of us. And it began after World War I, where um, the nephew of Sigmund Freud, a man named Edward Bernays, he used what he'd learned about propaganda during wartime, after the war had ended, to then use those same tools to sell things to people to make companies rich. As a result of that, we find ourselves in the century of the expressive individual who has desires and needs that advertising companies have learned how to tap into. The result is that we want and we want and we want and we need more, more, more. How do you like it? We need more, more, more all the time, believing all the time that we need more comfort, we need more holidays, we need a new sofa, we need a new car, we must have more money in order to be content. And so how Morgan Spurlock got unwell in Super Size Me, uh, how he behaved in that film is how most of us are conditioned to behave, particularly during our holidays of Christmas and Black Friday, except for the fact that unlike Morgan Spurlock, we never notice that we're sick because everybody else is like it. Now, it wasn't always this way. Um, in 14th century England, for example, the average peasant uh, died owning only six items. They had some, often they'd have other animals to their name, but they died only owning, owning six things. Most things in the country, of course, belonged to the king or to the lords. And before 1750, a shirt cost the equivalent of 2,000 pounds in today's money. Uh, the shirt on your back was something that you passed down through the generations. Now, the average 10-year-old has 238 toys 
and plays with 12 every day, if that. The average Brit's household um, is full of items to the value of 35,000 pounds. And according to various studies, don't hate me for this one, it's science, okay, don't hate me. According to various studies, the average British woman buys 59 items of clothing each year and has twice as many things in her wardrobe as 1980, and she has things in her wardrobe to the tune of 22 things that she's never actually worn. The average British woman. I know it's really hard to believe, really hard to believe. We live, the reality is, we live in the richest society at the richest time, the most comfortable time in human history, which is grotesquely rich, and yet this is what it's brought us. These lovely images of happy shoppers on Black Friday, more, more, more. And the sociologist Christian Smith discovered that between 18 and 23-year-olds, uh, some surveys that he'd done, he discovered that they are, he used the phrase, they are captive to consumerism. We can take that away. Few people are able even to fathom taking up the mantle of living modestly or simply. God's wisdom, great gain, we read it, great gain, great wealth, true wealth in the world can be found in godliness with contentment. Seems so hard to believe. And a major problem, and the major, major problem behind all of this, and the reason this is an issue for us, is because with great greed comes theft. We can justify it. One writer said that greed is a bottomless pit which exhausts the person in an endless effort to satisfy the need without ever reaching that satisfaction. Because I know that the reality of it, if I was to ask the majority of you, how much money do you think you need to be comfortable? Almost all of us would say, a little bit more. <laughs> just, just a little bit more than I've got. How, and 81% of students in a survey said that getting rich was one of their most important life goals. How different that is perhaps from what Paul tells Timothy. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. They plunge themselves into ruin and destruction. And that's the reason it's relevant for what we're talking about today in theft. Greed and the need for more consumerism makes theft acceptable. Greed turns polite and well-mannered smeagles into golems, obsessed with and fixated on things that we're convinced we need to bring us happiness. My precious. We say to the things that we haven't yet bought, we'll do anything to get them. Actually, the Bible says this isn't really new at all. Gollum isn't new either. Um, right, in the, right in the very first story, the first few pages of the Bible, in the origin story that describes our human condition and how we got here, the picture there is, is one of the woman seeing something she desired and saying, my precious, and taking it. The image is of a woman and a man believing the lie that the Creator cannot be trusted. Instead, you need to look to the creation to satisfy you. My precious, I need these things to make me happy. Don't trust God. Trust God's world. Get rid of God. Just have his world. Just have his gifts. That's the first Bible verse, the one that I said you wouldn't really believe. and Maybe you did believe it, I don't know. But this one, I can almost guarantee you won't like. This is the second verse we're going to look at. Um, the previous point was for all of us. Whether you describe yourself as a believer or not, there's probably a lot in that you think, yeah, there's, there's wisdom. I, I can see the need for that in society to, to, to look after our world and to not just consume things and destroy things and have more, more, more. You can see that. 
For this next Bible verse, if you're not a, a Christian, if you're someone who's just exploring faith, you're let off the hook, okay? Because this one is leveled at Christians and is aimed at them. There's only one place in the entire Bible where, where God accuses his people of stealing from him. And he tells them off in the way that a parent would tell off their child. It's in an Old Testament book called Malachi, um, which is one of those small books that I can't find on the spot when you're staring at me, so we're going to read it off the screen. Uh, Malachi 3, verse 6 says this, uh, For I, the Lord, do not change. And then goes on to say, Will man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you're cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. It needs a bit of explanation. In the Old Testament, in Jewish society, the, the things that were coded into how they were to live together was this. 10% of everything they had, uh, every, everything they accrued, whether it's in crops or livestock or in money, 10% of that was treated as something that belonged to God. It was his. And the actual fact is everything belonged to God, but he kind of coded into the system. Listen, everything belongs to me, but if you, just the top 10%, the first thing, if you give that back to me, then everything else is no longer under the same kind of destructive curse that it might otherwise have been. It won't destroy you because your heart will be getting in the right place. So in the Old Testament, the, the system was give 10% of your first things to God and then you can make contributions on top of that to the, to the poor and to various charities and to help people in need. That was how things were set up in the Old Testament. And in the, in the New Testament, nothing changes. Well, something changes quite significantly actually what changes is that we're no longer under those same rules we're no longer under those same laws because the expectations for the christian is so much higher now for how we live in the old testament it was listen if you can just do this if you can just give 10 percent to god then everything else will be fine and, and your your money and your stuff won't be broken it won't be a curse it won't destroy you in the new testament it's everything is god's now so he owns everything you need to give him everything and Christians are often a little bit woolly about this, if we're honest. And I speak for myself. We're often a little bit woolly about this because we don't like what it says. We, we want to find ways to not believe it. But the verse opens by saying, I am the Lord, I never change. And then kind of makes this, this, this statement about tithes and offerings. And accuses people, God's people, of robbing him, of stealing from him. What that means for the believer is that if you don't give 10%, the first 10% of everything you have, you're stealing from God because it belongs to Him. You're taking what belongs to Him and keeping it for yourself. In fact, given what the New Testament says, if you don't see everything as what you've... Is, if you don't see everything you own as belonging to God, and if you don't ask, at least at some point in your year, every year, this is all yours, how much should I keep rather than how much should I give? If you don't ask that, you haven't really understood whose it all is. And there's a case to be made that you're robbing God. We're all thieves in that sense. Now, if you're following me, I would guess there's going to be dozens of objections, or at least four or five. 
and very heartfelt, strong objections to this outrageous idea. This is unrealistic. This is very hard. This is unfair. It's just, this is just the church trying to get more money. I told you, religious people are out to just steal from you and make themselves fat in the process. Or you might be sitting there going, are you trying to tell me that if I don't give 10%, my first 10% of, of all my income, if you don't, if I, are you trying to tell me if I don't do that, God won't love me? God won't forgive, God will be angry at me? Is that, are you trying to tell me that? Or you might say, listen, mate, it might have been good then, but I, you might not call me mate, that depends how well you know me or how rude you are. You might say, I give to God my time. He doesn't want my money. Or you might say, I'm in debt. In which case we'd say, yeah, you're right, you're in debt, you need to get out of debt. <laughs> God doesn't want other people's money. Um, he wants you to learn this principle for yourself. So if you're in debt, make a plan to get out of debt first before you take, apply a lot of what I'm going to say. But let's engage with some of those objections because they're valid. And I'm with you. I, I sit under this book as much as anyone and go, this hurts. This is hard. The truth is, it is hard to put rocks into a bucket that's full of sand. The rocks should have gone in first if they were going to go in at all. And before you can get the rocks into the bucket, you're going to have to get some sand out. In other words, before you can learn to apply this principle in your life, the first thing you're going to really have to do is just sit down and make a financial plan. Be in charge of your money. At the end of the day, if you don't control your money, your money will control you. And so few of us have really gotten to grips with our money because well, we just we want to buy all the time. So we're so used to that trap. And the reason so many people I meet can't afford to give a, a, the tithe or the initial 10% as an act of worship to God. The reason they can't is because most people have learned to live within 100% of their means. And living within 100% of your means is never a good idea. Because as soon as something breaks, and things will break, you've got no buffer. You've got nothing to do. So the encouragement to make a good financial plan would be work to live within 90% of your means Save 10% if you're not a Christian. That's just a good way to live. If you're a Christian, I would say learn to live within 80%. Give 10% to God. Save 10%. Now again, a lot of you think, well, that's unrealistic. I get it. It's hard. You don't expect a child to start running as soon as they're born. It takes years. So it's a process of learning to trust God and to obey his commands in this. When people say, I give my time to God instead of my money. I think the appropriate answer is great. God wants your time and your money. It all belongs to him. Everything you have, you're to give to God as an act of worship. And that's the difference between Christian generosity or the principle that we're looking at here. That's the difference between that and a lot of what people who aren't believers would be familiar with when it comes to charitable giving. God isn't interested in you tipping him. God doesn't need your money. The church doesn't need your money. I mean, we're a community of believers. We'll do with whatever money people give. We'll make use of that. I'm not going to stand up here and say, you must give because we need more money. Oh, whatever money you give is clearly what God's calling us to do. So I'm not, I'm not too worried about that. But part of the reason we don't pass the buckets around on a Sunday is, firstly, it's a little bit awkward if, if you're a guest and it's your first Sunday. So I'm like, you put some money in. You're like, for the coffee? For the talk? It wasn't that good. For the music? What's the money for? So partly, I don't really like that culture. And secondly, I don't really, 
God, I'm not interested in us learning to tip God on a Sunday. Oh, the bucket's coming. Um, oh, that'll do. This is about your heart. This is giving to God is an act of worship. And so we just put some giving stations around the room. We say, if you want to give to God as an act of worship, as, this, as part of this community, use the forms there. Do what you can. Give. We'd love to help you do that. If you're not part of this church, where are you giving? Because this is the other thing. Giving your first 10% to God is an act of worship. It's, it's not an act of charity, or it's not even something that you choose what you want to, you know, a ministry you want to fund. Um, you know, I, I, was, I was forever getting um, direct debits coming out of my bank accounts when I was a teenager, because I first got some money, and you get stopped by those people in the streets, and they'd give you a clipboard, and they'd you know, guilt you into saying, okay, it's £5 a month. And you know, we'd all try that tip and go, this is really interesting. I'll think about it at home. But they know you won't. And so they press harder. And so I think for a long time I was donating to lots of things, largely due to how, much, how pretty the person was that was asking me. I was very, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. But that's the truth. I was like, I was a, teen, I was a young boy and I was confused. And she said, if you give me money, I'll be pleased. I was like, oh, okay. Anyway, but that's very different. It's very different from the Christian saying, everything I have is God's. I'm going to give them my first 10% as an act of worship in the New Testament, what they did was they sold stuff and they laid it at the feet of the apostles or the church leaders. They just gave the money and said, look, you do with this what you want. Because really, it's not really about that. It's about you. I'm trusting God. I give as an act of worship and now you do what you want with it. And, and See, the other thing that people would say, oh, you're telling me God won't be pleased with me. You think God will be cross with me. God won't forgive me if I don't give. Listen, if my kids spoke to me like that, I would think I've got some real problems in my, in my family. If they disobey me on something and they're like, oh, will daddy still love me? Will daddy still forgive me? I'm like, who are you? What have I done wrong to warrant this response? In the Bible, obeying God, and if you don't get this, then you probably don't really get so much of what we've been doing with the Ten Commandments. In the Bible, God's commands are not sticks that he beats us with. They're invitations for a blessed life, to learning to trust him, to undo so much of the chaos and the brokenness in life. God's commands are for your good, and not for him. Scripture says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the hills as well. He doesn't need your money. I hope you're getting this. This is for you. So it's quite rude, it's quite abrupt. It says, if you're not giving the tithe, you're robbing God. That's quite harsh. But you realize what's underneath that is actually a principle for your life. That says, this is about me saying, I trust God. I don't trust my finances. I don't trust my stuff to satisfy me. And of course, like everything in the Christian life, this is a something we do through, we, it's a journey through life. If you're like brand new as a Christian going, this sounds heavy. Like, I agree. So much of Jesus' teachings are, but part of being a disciple is saying, I'm going to learn to follow that one. I'm going to trust him. And so we do. It's a lifelong process of learning. Anyway, but the big underlying principle behind all of this is that you are not an owner of anything. You don't own anything. Most of you know that because you're living in a house that the bank owns and you're slowly paying them back for it or you're paying someone else because they own the house. But the reality is everything in your life, including the breath in your lungs, is on loan to you from God. And when he decides to take it back, he will. God gives, God takes away. God gives, God takes away. We're just those who loan stuff from him. And he says, right. The thing is, if I give 
Often this happens, doesn't it, with kids. I give my kids some sweets. Second later, oh, can I have one of the sweets? No, they're mine. Right, it's the rule from now on. When I give you sweets, the first 10% belongs to me. I should implement that, but I don't because I hope that they get it. You're a renter, you're a loner. These sweets are a gift. Everything you have is like that. It should be at God's disposal for you to do with whatever you want with. So at some level, the good news is we are all thieves. <laughs> we all of us need to learn to trust God with our stuff, the things that he gives us. But the good, the better news is that God loves thieves. When Jesus died on the cross, I mean, if you haven't been going to church long, you, you might know this. When Jesus died on the cross, he was crucified next to two other people. Who were they? Sorry. <laughs> they were thieves. Thank you, Rodney. They were thieves. And one of the thieves just mocked Jesus. Pfft, look at this. He thought he was a king. He thought he was in charge. They'd taken everything from him. Should have stuck up for himself. Should have fought for himself. The other thief said, we deserve this because we're thieves. What's he done? And this thief turns to Jesus and says, please remember me when you're in your father's house. And Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. I tell you the truth, you're forgiven. Pardons him. God is a loving father who overflows with life and mercy and kindness and forgiveness and grace. And he gives us rules to say, listen, this is how things work. This is what, this will do you good. And I know many of you in the room would be able to stand up and say, I've put this principle in my life, tithing or trying to resist stealing or trying to live with integrity, trying to trust God, trying not to grab stuff from the world but submit to God. I've put these principles in my life and they've done me good for decades. I know that story is replicated across the room. And many of you would be able to stand up and say, I gave loads of stuff away and somehow stuff came back. Like I, my emotional needs were met and I wasn't expecting it or someone provided for me something just when I needed it. Because until you walk on the water, you have no idea, no way of knowing whether or not you're able to stand on it, whether or not God's able to satisfy you. And that's why these are important principles for us. And today we're going to end by breaking bread as we always do. But we're going to break bread and use uh, a very old confessional statement to help us prepare our hearts for communion. Because as Jesus died on the cross, his body was broken, his blood was poured out so that thieves could be forgiven. So that those of us who've robbed God or find it hard to trust God could find kindness and grace and mercy and adoption and inclusion and acceptance at our time of need. That's why he died. His body was broken, his blood was poured out for sinners. And to be a sinner is to miss the target. And we would all say we've missed the target in life. Would we? Maybe. So I'm going to invite the band up and then we're going to respond together by reading aloud Thomas Cranmer's ancient words written in the 16th century as a way of helping us prepare. But before we do that, let's just bow our heads in prayer and prepare our hearts for God. <coughs> Father, we thank you for the message that your commands to us are life-giving and that you have grace and mercy in abundance for everyone who comes to you. You forgive you train, you teach. God, we sit under your words this morning 
And we ask that you'd use it to transform us and make us new. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.